Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and today I have the first guest ever on the Deep Dives podcast back again to talk about his favorite team, the Philadelphia 76ers, sort of returning a favor when he let me talk about the Kings on his podcast, so very grateful for that. And I'm here today with Jordan Christmas. So Jordan, how are you doing? Was I really the first guest on the Deep Dives podcast? I, I didn't know. Oh, yes, for, you were. I forgot about that. I've done so many of them it's like this is like the equivalent of you know you you come back to a neighborhood that you moved out of that you were growing up in and you know you're like oh there's the mailbox right there there's the old house right there this is what it feels like this is what it feels like coming back to the deep dives podcast i'm happy to be back (laughs) happy to have you back yeah it's been almost five years at this point which is absolutely ludicrous i know yeah and now that i'm now that i'm back at hashtag basketball it's like going to the old stomping grounds it really Time flies. Well, speaking of time flies, someone that we certainly talked about on that first podcast and are going to talk about again on this one and on probably every Sixers podcast for the next 10 years or so, Joel Embiid. Yes. Probably now the MVP frontrunner after LeBron and the Lakers have had, let's say, a difficult last couple of weeks or so. But Joel is putting up almost 30 points a night, 11 rebounds, three assists with spectacular defense. And I'm sure you don't have really all that much to say about Joel Embiid, but why not go for it? What are your thoughts on his MVP campaign? I'm sure they're very negative. Uh, Yeah, uh, completely negative. You know, there's a few things that he has been doing. No, dude, um, <laughs> this. So I've already spent full disclosure. I did an hour and a half of Sixers talk on my podcast. Uh, just came episode just came out yesterday, and I am always ready to talk Sixers, especially Joel Embiid, who me and you we talked about a few years or you know in our early deep dives podcast days. We talked about specifically Joel Embiid and Giannis being perennial MVP candidates down the road, and. To me, Embiid's the front runner, and to me, he's been the front runner for a while. Uh, not to say LeBron or Jokic don't have good cases, but to me, it's one. His offensive leap has been spectacular, and it it has really been something to behold because it's not the traditional. You think, okay, he's posting up more, which is a little true, but his he is basically a three-level scorer now as a seven-foot-two player, which is absurd. I mean, he's shooting 52% from the field or almost 53% from the field, 40% from three, 85% from the free throw line. And then you mentioned the numbers, almost 30, 11, and three. His scoring dipped below 30 because, you know, the Raptors have just figured out how to guard Joel Embiid, which brought his average down, which made me sad just from a fan perspective and wanting to see a 30 and 11 stat line. But um, he, he's been incredible on that end of the floor. And then that base, his offense has basically overshadowed what he was good at immediately when he came into the league, or he was already elite at when he immediately started playing is his defense. Um, the, him and Ben Simmons, when we'll talk about Ben Simmons later, but both of them have anchored that defense and, you know, it's just it's one of those things where it's great after everything Joel Embiid's been through um, with the foot, the back, the not having two two playoff runs, two out of three playoff runs where he wasn't fully healthy. Um, he's finally committed to being in shape, which honestly, it he needed to be in shape, but I thought that whole thing was overblown. Um, I think it was more so every summer he had injuries 
uh, going into the season. There was like what th- this off season and the off season uh, before the 2018, 19 season were the only off seasons he had where he was healthy. So he could work on his game. And now that he's had an healthy off season, we're seeing why the process was worth it. We have an MVP candidate and as much concerns as I have about this team in the playoffs, I feel a lot better with my chances in the playoffs, having a player like Joel Embiid. And it's, it's been great to see. I mean, he's averaging the, the one thing I will say before I turn it back to you is he's averaging almost 12 free throws a game and he's making 10 of them per game. And it's really hard in levels of free throw drawing or foul drawing. And he's a center. Nobody knows how to guard this guy. The gravity of de- the gravity he attracts on the on the offensive end of the floor from defenders is really reminiscent of Steph Curry, except it's literally five guys in the paint, whereas with Steph, it's five guys forty feet from the basket. And he's to me, he's the MVP front runner, and I think it's with a bullet now with the Lakers struggling. I'm glad that you brought up that Raptors game, not out of some sort of sense of Schadenfreude, but just because I think it really <laughs> kind of highlights when Joel Embiid is at his best, where that was an atrocious game for him on the offensive end. Let's just sort of say that up Both front. games. Both games were. Yeah. But really, the one on Tuesday in particular, what I really noticed was the kind of impact that Joel Embiid has, even when he's having a terrible night. And that's, I think, something that's kind of interesting to evaluate about various MVP candidates is what kind of impact do they have on nights when their shots not going down and not to single anyone out really, but to single out Trey young, if Trey young's shot <laughs> is not falling, he's, he's a, a negative. Yep. Yeah. He's a negative because he can't play defense at all. And he's a really great passer, but if he's shooting three for 17, you know, they're going to let him keep shooting 40 footers if he wants to keep shooting 40 footers. But with Joel Embiid, <laughs> just him being on the floor is dramatic in how it impacts the opposing offense because teams just won't go into the paint and try and challenge him. So even when he's having a night where he's shooting three of 13 from the floor, he's still an incredibly impactful player just by standing there on the defensive end and being an incredible presence in the paint. Yeah. And you know, you saw, I mean, you saw the two Raptors games, like the threes that the Sixers were getting off of Embiid passes was just that that just under that just shows you like you said he could really he's at the point now he's reached the level where he's impacting the game in other ways on that end um we should talk about this i think his passing out of double teams yeah you can look at the assist to turnover ratio it's negative again but i'm telling you as somebody who has watched every nearly every minute of Embiid playing basketball including a lot of his college games at kansas i have to tell you this is the best i've seen Embiid passing out of double teams he'll still have the lazy passes and he's not a natural reader like say Nikola Jokic or you know even a Demonis Sabonis some of the other guys who are have a more natural inclination and feel for passing but Embiid has a high basketball IQ he's mixed in his face-up game with his post-up game and I think his face-up game has allowed him to see the floor better but now he's inviting the double team and you know sometimes he'll make a cross-court pass where I'm just like whoa like that is some next level stuff but he usually just makes a lot of the simple reads and just the simple reads are enough because it's usually going to end up in an open shot because the roster is now way more fitting and better constructed around their two best players. And Bede's passing this year has been 
way better. And because of that, he can have a night where the Raptors literally say, we're going to send five guys at you. You're not going to win this game. And Embiid will be like, okay, I have guys who can shoot around the perimeter and I have an aggressive a new found aggression from my second co-star, Ben Simmons. And Embiid has also been finding not just shooters, but him and Ben in terms of their high-low passing. Um, Embiid has found Simmons on cuts more. Uh, Embiid is utilizing the fact that Simmons still stands in the dunker spot a bit, but, you know, there's better off-ball movement between those two. And the passing has really has been the one thing that I've been impressed with this year on for on offense for Embiid. There's one thing that you said that I do want to circle back to, which is that he's almost inviting the double teams now. And it felt like in past seasons, he was afraid of the double team, not because he couldn't score out of it, but because he couldn't pass out of it. Yep. That if they doubled him, he wouldn't be able to find the right guy. He wouldn't be able to find someone on the perimeter to kick it out to who can actually shoot from long range. And that's really, I feel like the biggest difference this season is, you know, I don't think he's ever going to be one of the best passing centers in the league. But as you said, he doesn't need to be. He just needs to be able to make the simple reads consistently. And that's really, I think, the biggest difference this season is that he's made the simple reads consistently. And so that's allowed him to, you know, have a little bit more confidence in his passing and try some of those more advanced cross-court passes that you were mentioning that every once in a while he'll throw those and, you know, having seen him since Kansas is like, wow, he actually made that pass that he definitely wouldn't have even seen two years ago, much less attempted. And making these simple reads consistently, I think will allow him to unlock more of those advanced reads because he's less afraid of the double team than he would have been a year ago. And it's, and you know, and real quickly, it's a lot easier to trust the pass when you're passing it to guys like Seth Curry and Danny Green and, Tobias Harris, as who's now shooting a lot more three-point attempts, as opposed to passing it to Josh Richardson, who will pump fake and then dribble in for a awful pull-up mid-ranger, or Al Horford jab-stepping 50 times and then taking a 19-footer. So the roster definitely plays a part in it. But like you said, he, he's just going to get better with this because now he's trusting his teammates more and the pass more. So let's move on to Philadelphia's other all-star, Ben Simmons, who had a really, really, really slow start to the season offensively, but he's been picking that up lately. Really, the storyline for Ben Simmons is that he continues to be one of the best defenders in the league. And when you have Embiid on the interior and Simmons on the basically everything else, you kind of have a baseline (laughs) of a really good defense just with those two guys. Yeah, and over the years, I've always pushed back on the notion that one, and I've talked about this a million times, but I'm just going to say it here because I haven't been on the on this particular podcast in a while. I've always pushed back on the notion that Embiid and Simmons are just a terrible fit together. Are they perfect offensive fits together? No. If, if you listed all the top 25 players in the league, are those the two you would pair together? Probably not. But no one has ever talked about how perfect of a fit they are defensively because it's not just... Embiid's paint protection and you know he's not going to do it all the time but when he sits down in a stance and and he spaces correctly he can have he can uh let a ball he can have a ball handler stay in front of him he could keep a ball handler in front of him it's just you don't want to do it all the time but then you have this multi-dimensional lockdown 6'10 freak like Ben Simmons who has 
just ever since basically the Harden trade has been spectacular on offense, but all season, his defense is really top three level. And, you know, I had David Arroyo on my podcast this week to talk about the Sixers. And, you know, he said Ben Simmons is the best defensive player in the league. And I kind of countered with, I kind of like rim protection and Joel Embiid literally just shuts off the paint. But there is a case for Simmons being the best defensive player this year because in the playoffs, you need defensive stoppers to shut down guys who can get their shot in a pinch especially lower in the shot clock and if you want to take Simmons defense over Embiid's pain protection because of that I don't have any gripes because think about this in the Portland game a few weeks ago on TNT Damian Lillard went off he had over 20 points in the first half was hitting all these threes and then in the second half Doc Rivers put Ben Simmons on Dame and he literally erased him from existence like it was jarring to see the difference in physical stature it was jarring to see a 610 240 pound player just navigate through screens and being able to basically inhale any contact that the Blazers big set to try uh to try to get Dame off for open threes and still be able to recover like it's ridiculous. And before we came on, I was watching the uh, Sixers Mavericks game, which is still going on right now. Um, ben Simmons was throwing Luka Doncic in jail. Like it, it was a slog every time, not just with Ben Simmons, but every time Doncic has was running pick and roll at Embiid with Simmons guarding him, you're basically just asking to, you know, you know, just be buried six feet under pretty much on those plays because they just blow everything up um and you and when it comes to offense it's been one of those things where every year Ben Simmons kind of starts off slow he started off slow last year all the Philly fans of course because they're Philly fans and even I'm guilty of this sometimes we overreact and I and I've always been a Simmons defender but sometimes it is frustrating um it's like it's not just with the jump shot it's like why isn't he more aggressive why is he just why isn't he just barreling into the rim and getting contact and getting to the line more which he has been doing since the Harden trade and I really think there's a correlation between um when the Harden trade was done and Simmons picking up his production those two things are related to me also I think what we need to remember is that Ben Simmons was playing the best basketball of his career um last season and he hurt his back and then he had the knee injury happen in the bubble, and I really think he started off the year with a shortened offseason and everything. He was really not healthy. He didn't have the burst or the explosion that he usually has. But since the Harden trade and Simmons seemingly moving better and being more explosive, it, he's been he's been a top 12 to 15 player once again. And I and once again, now that he's playing better, we're realizing just how good of a player Simmons is. And now we got you know, the pendulum swinging the other way again, where people are saying, how did the Rockets not get this guy? Why did they choose the Nets package over Harden? When, yes, you have a lot of picks, but there's a very low chance one of them even turns out to be as good as Ben Simmons, let alone better than Ben Simmons. So I've loved Simmons play this year. And I agree when Kevin O'Connor says, like, this is the best basketball I've seen him play. It's just, it's really been fun to watch. It's really funny to me that you bring up the Harden trade thing because it sort of crystallizes the theory I've had for a while, which is that Ben Simmons plays out of spite more than almost anyone else in the NBA in terms of positive <laughs> affectation. 
I remember the conversation about him coming out of LSU being, you know, will he defend it all? You know, yep. just doesn't try on the defensive end at all. You know, is that going to be a problem in the NBA? And almost immediately he's like, no, screw you. I'm going to become one of the best defenders in basketball. And then it's like, yep. oh, well, is it a problem that he, you know, can't shoot at all and not only can't shoot, but refuses to shoot? And Ben basically saying, no, screw you. I'm an incredible basketball player, even if I never, ever take a <laughs> shot from beyond the three-point line. And it's just funny to me that, you know, you're bringing up the Harden trade thing and it makes total sense to me because it really does seem like there's a huge element of, no, screw you, I'm playing this entire game out of spite for whoever the doubters might be. And, you know, there's a whole long conversation about, you know, the doubters and, you know, people being fueled by doubters and all that sort of thing. But Ben Simmons' spite play, I think, is a theory that I might hold on to for a little while. I think I might hold on to that theory, too, because it really is one of – you know how, like, when whenever you're fr- – you, there's a movie you haven't seen, right? And your friends are like, oh, you haven't seen this movie? You have to see it. And they bug you about it all the time, and then you're just like, you know what? Nope. I'm not going to watch it because they just keep bugging you. That's exactly what it's like watching Ben Simmons not – still not even – attempt three-pointers because really he could take threes whenever he wants to I mean the the defense gives him a lot of space still even though for some reason a lot of teams are playing up more this year which is weird but whenever he has space a lot of the time and he has handle he could real honestly he could pull up whenever he wants to but he's just like you know what no I'm not going to and it's it's really funny like the jump shot the whole here's my whole thing with the jump shot Ben Simmons is never going to be a good three-point shooter. Would I like to see him take a few corner threes per game? Yes, I would. I would love to see every time he shoots like one three. He does this thing now where he shoots like one three a month and it's kind of like, okay, I shot my three. But uh, it, that's basically what that's basically what Ben does. He shoots his one three a month. Every, he's like, okay, everybody shut up and watch me play amazing defense, become a spectacular passer. And the underrated thing, I think, when Simmons had his offensive struggles early in the year where he was averaging like 14 and 8 and 8, which is still good, by the way, it was he would drive to the rim and he would always kick it out 100% of the time. And it's just like, dude, if you just take one more step or just one more dribble, you're at the rim and you're either going to get fouled or, you know, you'll miss the bunny, but at least you're attacking the rim and putting pressure on the defense, which is what you're best at. And he would always kick it out without even looking at the rim. And now he is figuring out this balance between I'm going to be aggressive on the drive versus I'm going to use leverage that aggression on the drive and create open looks for my teammates, which he has been doing. That 42-point game against Utah was so impressive to me because, one, he was attacking the rim with ferocity, going at Rudy Gobert of all people, and scoring over him, finishing over him. When the Jazz collapsed the paint, Simmons was kicking it out to open shooters. And it was one of those things where if we could get this aggressive Ben Simmons with the season Joel Embiid is having, all of a sudden you're cooking with gas. Because if we're being honest about this team, and we'll talk about it later, I'm sure, this team is good, but one or two things can go wrong and the margin for error for this team all of a sudden becomes really small because there's this team still has some flaws that I'm concerned about. But one thing to overshadow those flaws, and we have been saying it for years, and that's one of the reasons why I even bought I even talked myself into the Frankenstein roster that we had going into the season last year, where everyone was like, Sixers could be in the finals, the Sixers could be in the finals. 
it was we were banking on the fact that Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons would make the leaps that we are seeing this year, last year. But now we know that turns out you can't have 50 power forwards surrounding your two best players who also like the same spots on the floor as said power forwards. Yeah, funny how that doesn't work out. Yeah, it's just funny all. how you also having just a few guys who can dribble the basketball aside from Ben Simmons. It's funny how just having players who can do basic basketball things helps out a team immensely. Speaking of someone who does basic basketball things that help out the team immensely, Tobias Harris is having himself a really nice season to the point where yes. he was on the fringes of the all-star conversation, averaging 21, eight rebounds and around three and a half assists per game, still shooting around 42% from three point range on a decent number of attempts per game, a little over four attempts per game. And would love the to thing see with, that number go up. I'm sure you would. Well, that's the interesting part with Tobias Harris is that it feels like the best moments of Tobias Harris's career, like his current stretch with the Sixers this season and then his best season in Los Angeles, if he's hitting 40% from three, then that really opens up the rest of his game so much. And this is something that we sort of saw with CJ McCollum earlier this year before he went down with injury that – when, you know, he's a mid-range wizard, but when he started taking 11 threes a game, the rest mm -hmm. of his game opened up even more than it was when he was taking, you know, four or five threes a game. And I don't think you can really get Tobias Harris up to 11 threes a game just because he's not the kind of off-the-dribble shooter that C.J. McCollum is. But if you can get that up to six, seven threes a game, I think that opens up driving lanes for him a lot more. And if he's your secondary driver and creator, which, you know, he would be with Ben Simmons around, then you know that's really helpful if he's opening up his game just that little bit more by taking a couple of extra threes a game. So one of the reasons I was bullish on the Sixers from a regular season standpoint was, one, the roster construction. I was even saying before the season, put money on Joel Embiid MVP odds because I think he'll be a dark horse candidate. I wish I had followed my own advice, but whatever. Um, the, other, the other reason was if – Tobias Harris could, if Doc could recoup 60%, 65%, whatever arbitrary percentage you want to throw in terms of recouping the value on Tobias Harris's insane contract, then this team was going to be really good regular season-wise. Tobias Harris is a good player. He's a flawed player. He definitely needs some some of the conditions in terms of his basketball, the basketball environment around him need to be right for him to play the way he's playing, but... Doc Rivers is the Tobias Harris whisper. He's almost having a 50-40-90 season. Is a career year in scoring, rebounding. His defense has actually been really solid this year. Um, he is His hands are active. He just went out of the game tonight with a right knee contusion, which actually kind of scared me. And think of the timeline that we're in where Sixer fans now are just like, oh, God, we lost Tobias Harris, considering the year we had last year and how we basically – you know, was were killing Tobias for the contract and the year that he was having. Um, but basically, it's easy to look at it and say, okay, Doc has simplified things for Tobias, when really that just means, you know, make two decisions. Either give the ball up quickly or shoot. Like, that's what, that's what uh, you know, that's what that really means when Doc talks about we're going to get where, you know, we're going to get him in spots on the floor. We're going to, you know, get him to make quick decisions. That that's the buzzword, quick decisions. But really, it's just like either shoot or pass. And Tobias Harris is he has been that basically all year. And um, I wish he would take more than four point two attempts per game. Last year, he took five. 
and you know he shot 36 percent you know from the from the three-point line but it still wasn't enough now he is at least taking them with more confidence he's taking more corner threes because we're seeing a lot more corner threes from this team probably than uh years past even though it's weird the Sixers aren't one of the highest teams in the league in terms of three-point attempts one of the highest ranking teams despite the added shooting they have but Tobias has or Doc Rivers has simplified things for Tobias um, he's involving him in more pick and rolls, especially with Joel Embiid, who is getting better at setting screens um, with the by the game. And Tobias is just, you know, getting to his spots. Whenever there's a small guy on him, he posts him up. He shoots over the top of him when the ball swings to him on a three-point shot. Well, not these last couple of games, but for most of the season, whenever the ball swung to him and he's open at the three-point line, he'll take the shot and... Um, yeah, Tobias Harris has finally, you know, at least he is he is showing why Elton Brand way overpaid for Tobias Harris at the trade deadline because when he's like when he's producing like this, he's an effective player and a player who can absolutely help a good team. Let's move on to talking about the guard rotation sort of outside of Ben Simmons, whatever position you might want to call him, just everything position. But <laughs> let's talk about the guards more specifically. And the obvious place to start here is with Seth Curry. As of last night's win over the Raptors, the Sixers are now at 500 in games that Seth Curry has missed so far this season, now four and four. And when you're talking about the team that's leading the Eastern Conference, that's pretty impressive given the other star talent on this team. But really, you've already said this, but it does bear repeating that just being a guard who can dribble and sort of create on their own while also being one of the best three-point shooters of all time is really helpful for any team, but this Sixers team in particular. Yeah, as soon as Daryl Morey was hired, it's just funny how he was basically like, all right, I'm erasing literally everything everything you guys did last year and <laughs> he just and he started and it started with you know trading Josh Richardson and his expiring contract for Seth Curry in his three-year uh three-year 27 million dollar contract I don't know how I would have be able to handle if we kept Josh Richardson going into this year and we extended him you know given his production and his game as a player I don't know how comfortable I would have been with that probably not at all but Seth Curry has really been a lifesaver for this team like they he's he was the first solution Maury brought in he saw that we needed shooting and then of course you get one of the best three-point shooters ever and unfortunately he had a hot a hot start to the season right and then he had to unfortunately miss a few he had to miss a few weeks because he came down with COVID and he has talked about still dealing with the after effects of COVID there are he, there was a there was a game where he had to literally come out of the game because he would and didn't return because he was tired pretty much and the after effects were still getting to him but when you have Seth Curry on the floor it automatically draws the defense's attention it helps space the floor for Ben and Joel I would it's weird he doesn't have as quick of a trigger as I thought he would from three just in terms of just like I'm gonna quickly just chuck this one up which I would love to see him do more I just want I love that we got more shooters I would just love to see more quick triggerness I guess if that is even a term from these guys but 
Seth has been awesome for the Sixers this year, and he provides a little bit of ball handling. Now, this is where the margin of error stuff for me comes in because they are relying on Seth Curry sometimes, especially in some of these bench units um, when he's playing with the bench guys. They are relying on him to be a ball handler more, and I just think that's overtaxing his role, quite frankly. But he can dribble a little bit. He has a floater, and he has a shot that – you know, it sounds simplistic as a fan, but he has a shot where I'm just like, every time he shoots it, I think it's going in because Seth is one of the best three-point shooters in NBA history. Basically, if you're a Curry, you could shoot anyway, but it's just been refreshing to see because now we're seeing at least some reminiscent dribble handoff stuff with Joel and Seth, like with Joel and JJ Redick in the past, although Redick is a way quicker trigger on the, uh, on the three-point line, but Seth has absolutely been a key for us but it kind of speaks to the margin of error with this team yeah i'm still upset that the kings let seth curry go so let's move on to someone who definitely does not struggle with <laughs> i'm sorry for opening up old figure. wounds oh i'm a kings fan everything is old wounds please <laughs> anyway moving on to someone who definitely does not struggle from not having a quick enough trigger finger in shake milton and it looks like the 40 three percent three-point shooting from last year is not exactly going to hold given that he shot 32 percent in his rookie year and is at 33 percent now but he has been really really huge for this Sixers team off the bench just being someone who defenses really have to key in on when the key guys are out of the game and if he can go to somewhere between the 43% from last season and the 33% he's at now, you know, somewhere in the 36% range, especially given the rest of his game, I think that's someone who will be competing for six man of the year trophies in the next few years. But really, if his three point shot is more in that 30 to 33% range, I think that'll be a little less likely. Yeah. Um, I'm still not sure. I'm still not sure Shake still isn't an elite three-point shooter because we know his work from SMU, and we know in the G League, at least, he was destroying people from the three-point line. I still think he's a, he's a really good shooter. It's just that it hasn't really bore out as much this year. I think there's some stuff going on with the shot, maybe mechanically, that he's changed. I don't know. But I still trust – I still very much trust him shooting the ball from three. I expect that number to pick up a little bit, but – Shake for the contract that he is on, by the way, it has been, this is why I always, I always hate it when teams just sell off second round picks. I understand the odds of you getting even a productive player, let alone the coveted Draymond type or whatever is very low, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't take away your batting attempts. I guess getting a bite at the apple, right? Um, Shake Milton was the 54th pick in the draft and really I only started watching some college games on him because the rights to Ricky Sanchez one of my favorite Sixer podcast uh Mike Levin the co-host he watches a lot of college basketball and you know I watched a lot of college basketball too especially during the process uh just not so much when the team became good um my scouting yeah, that's has... a Kings fan province right there watching college <laughs> basketball games for draft purposes yeah and I de I still watch some prospects but definitely I will admit it's not as much but that was the only reason I started watching Shake Milton is because this guy can dribble, this guy can shoot, and this guy can pass. But And Doc has basically – one of the things I think Doc has done better than maybe, say, Brett Brown is that 
Doc has kind of given his players freedom. I also think Doc kind of has he still has it branded in his head the um the shake game that he that he had against the Clippers last year where shake gave the Clippers he gave Kawhi and Paul George just straight buckets and I know that's a weird thing to say in the same sentence but it happened and Doc Rivers was coaching that team and Doc Rivers references that game he's going into the season he's like I'm gonna let shake be shake and he is just somebody who is an extra ball handler who has a nice floater game. I really I really like his floater game. Um, it's nice to see a guard <laughs> use a floater, given that this team barely has had any guards like that in the past. But Shake has really been a catalyst for this bench. And when he went down with the ankle injury against your Sacramento Kings on the road, uh, you really saw that a fe- an already feast or famine bench is now just famine when Shake is out. And that's the other part where this bench unit is really it's really inconsistent if shake isn't in there because that means Tyrese Maxey is getting more minutes and that means Furkan Korkmaz is getting more of the ball handling duties but shake is back now the bench is kind of stabilized but um shake in terms of shake season he's really turned into a valuable NBA player and maybe somebody down the road we could trade I mean that contract is it's ridiculous. It's definitely eminently it's, movable. Imi- eminently yeah. movable. Yeah, and given the production he has shown, I mean, that's gonna be that's gonna be a high value contract down the road. But uh, Shake Milton has just is been another second round uh, find, and it just goes to show: don't sell your second round picks, or don't just trade off second round picks for cash, or draft a player in the second round and then trade him later because you don't think he'll be good or be on the rotation. Give that player a shot. So that's my little rant on that. Well, speaking of giving a player a shot, someone you actually brought up briefly when talking about Shake Milton. Tyrese Maxey had a 39-point game earlier this season, and granted, that was entirely because the Sixers had, like, eight players available for that game. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. But, you know, any rookie who can put up 39 points in an NBA game, no matter how weird the circumstances, is someone that you got to look at long-term. Yeah. Maxie has an incredible amount of upside, but really for him, it's just going to be that his shot has always been the question, and that sort of continued to be the question this season. But all the athletic tools are there. Yeah, and I think, see, I'm conflicted about Maxie a bit now, especially with this recent stretch where, you know, he is playing like a rookie, but I'm looking at these other rookies and the other Tyrese, who is on your team, playing oh, like they're yes. playing that like they're not rookies or already finding their role on the team and thriving in it like say Patrick Williams or somebody like that I'm conflicted about Maxi because I think for the first you know the preseason and early on in the season when he was getting rotation minutes I think Sixer fans saw a guard not only dribble but get to the hoop and then hit a floater right on the next possession and you're just like whoa what's this we haven't had this since you know, six months of Jimmy Butler. And <laughs> it, it, but at the end of the day, he's still plays like a rookie. He's only 20 years old. But the thing is, like, I'm getting less and less confident on his shot. He's a hard worker. He's talked about his offseason workouts and how many shots he's taking per day. But it still looks like he shoots from his chest. He doesn't get enough strength in his shot so he has to launch it from there and he's taking deep threes which I think also goes goes in hand with my theory on why he's shooting like he's you know like how I shot when I was in sixth seventh and eighth grade is I don't think he's fully developed yet but you know Maxi is 
had a rookie year. He's still at, he's averaging eight points. His minutes has been his minutes have been inconsistent. Uh, recently, he's been out of the rotation, and because you know, at the end of the day, he still gets lost defensively. Even though he's a really, I think he could be a really good point of attack defender later on in his career. But it really just comes down to can he hit his three point shot off the dribble? Can he hit spot up threes when you know Ben or Joel have the ball in the post? And um, can he really expand his offensive game beyond, you know, the floater? But he can dribble. He can get to the hole. Probably he, that's in terms of just those two, two skills alone. He's probably the best sixer guard in that regard just because I think he has more bursts than, say, Shake Milton or Furkan Korkmaz who kind of need somebody like Dwight Howard to set bone-crunching screens. Maxi can kind of get his own shot in that way. And I think uh, that's why he has value. But, I mean... I know we're not going to talk about hypothetical trades probably, but I know there's a lot of Kyle Lowry rumors flying around today. Um, the It makes sense. And if Maxi were to be included in a package, I would be totally fine with it. Because I don't think, like, if it'd be one thing if it was like, like, like I mentioned earlier, Halliburton or, you know, even Isaac Okoro, who is a big body defensive wing who has already guarded the best players in the league and has a clear defined role or something like that. But you know, a high upside rookie like Maxi is definitely an enticing piece, and I would be willing to include him in a deal because I don't. I think at this point you have to capitalize on Ben and Joel, and Maxi unfortunately doesn't fit that bill. Yeah, it's a tough calculus, and especially the it most is, obvious examples. Yeah, and the most obvious examples in my mind for this are always Chauncey Billups and De'Aaron Fox. Look at their rookie seasons, right? Yeah. And just look at their rookie seasons, and then just compare them to their sophomore seasons, right? It's so hard for a rookie guard in the NBA to pick things up quickly enough to be a serious contributor. Yep. And that's, you know, the most impressive part about LaMelo Ball and Tyrese Halliburton this season is that they've gotten that pretty much right away as rookies. And every once in a while, there are guys who just get it right away. You know, John Morant was obviously someone who just got it right away, but it's so hard to be a rookie guard and especially to be a rookie point guard, which makes it difficult to sort of talk about the calculus of giving up on those guys in the middle of their rookie year. But I mean, the Sixers are still at the top of the Eastern conference right now. And if you can trade Tyrese Maxey for Kyle Lowry, even if Tyrese Maxey is a hall of famer 10 years from now, I think that's still a trade that will be worthwhile if yep. it makes the Sixers title favorites, which they'd certainly be close if they added Kyle Lowry and didn't give up much more than Tyrese Maxey. But let's move on from the guard rotation to talking about the forward and wing rotation, starting with Danny Green, who started the season absolutely ice cold and then hit nine three-pointers in a game against Miami and has basically been pretty close to peak Danny Green since then. But early season, he was certainly getting killed by Philadelphia media and media more generally. Yeah. Danny Green is like this. I'm sure you remember this when I had my old Twitter account, but this is very reminiscent of the Robert Covington Civil War that happened among oh Sixer fans. And it's kind of a little bit worse than that because Danny Green at this point is not well. You could kind of art. You could kind of argue either or. But I think Danny Green's a little worse than Covington. But it's just the little things that Green does. He's not the one-on-one -on -one defender he once was in San Antonio, but he's still a very hellacious and smart team defender. 
Um, he is a one of the quick-triggered three-point shooters, which I like, and he's a corner three specialist. I think every time he takes a corner three, I think it's going in. And I know he's disappeared in the last two playoffs, uh, especially with the Raptors and the Lakers. And, you know, whenever he dribbles, I have a heart attack. Um, definitely more so than Covington, but I... But I, but and it's a uh, like ten times worse. But every time he dribbles, I cringe. Um, he makes some of the most boneheaded decisions I have ever seen from a veteran. But at the end of the day, overall, he's a positive player. Do I want him in closing lineups sometimes, especially when he's off? No. Um, it's definitely a situational thing. But he's definitely a valuable player. He's a fitting player next to Ben and Joel, which is really honestly what should matter. And even if he's not, you know, even he's going to go through his cold streaks, he's going to, you know, fumble the ball away trying to attempt a floater where that'll go off the backboard if he's ran off the three-point line. And all the warts that Laker fans and Raptor fans complained about, especially during playoff time. But he brings value, especially regular season-wise. And in the playoffs, he I just have a feeling he's going to hit. It's a, it's a dumb thing. I can't prove this with stats or film or whatever, but I've seen him make big shots this year and I need somebody in the playoffs that is willing to at least take the shot that they're comfortable taking when it's crunch time and um, it's low in the shot clock and say Ben Simmons throws you a ha uh, basically a hot grenade and you have to get off the shot. Da I feel like Danny Green is just going to hit a big shot for us or he'll do what he did in what was it? Game four of the Lakers, uh, of the finals last year where basically he threw up an air ball and you know brick hurt around the world yeah the brick uh, the brick heard around around the world and then you know sixer fans will probably you know kill him through the media the next day but danny green has been valuable and he's been a positive player so i'm not going to kill him too much um he's definitely frustrating but he's been exactly what they need i feel I'm pretty sure he still holds the record for most three-pointers made in a finals from back in 2014 with the Spurs. Yep. If not, that record was broken very recently. And Oh, no, I think I Steph mean, Curry has that. Uh, well, I think it was most threes in a final series, or were you talking games? Just a game. I think it was most – well, no, it couldn't have been 2014 most threes in a final series because that series only went five No, it was, 20, it was 2013. The okay, series thank the Spurs you. Yeah. lost. Uh, Danny Green was on fire and Gary Neal in that series. There's a throwback. Yeah, seriously. But moving on from the Danny Green conversation to someone who, in my mind, has had a really confusing year, Matisse Thibel, who oh boy. continues to be an absolute world beater on the defensive end, but the offensive game has gone from lacking to non-existent. And he's losing playing time steadily and consistently because there just isn't anything on the offensive end. And even though he's still managing to average a steal and a block per game in 18 minutes, which is absurd, he's just not <laughs> going to get to play that much if he can't dribble, shoot, or pass. And that's kind of how it feels right now a lot of the time with him. Yeah, he's been getting more minutes recently because I do think, I do think you know, the ankle injury that he suffered in training camp, especially in a expedited training camp in offseason really hindered him he definitely played like he was lost when he initially came back from his injury but he, when he's getting minutes he like you said he has been an absolute menace defensively um deflections steals 
he's one of the he's already one of the best defenders I've seen in terms of being able to block jump shots and it he's figuring out he's finally figuring out the balance between jumping on a jump shot or jump or falling for the pump fake or just staying down and you know using showing your hands um so I know Doc has been on him about that he's talked about it but yeah offensively it's a lot it, it leaves a lot to be desired man I mean every time he gets the ball have you ever played pickup hoops and you're playing with that one guy who you know you you know he really can't do anything with the ball offensively, and he knows it, so he just quickly gives up the ball anytime it swings his way, and you think, okay. Yes, because that person is me. <laughs> I'm the guy in pickup who my only skills are I'm much more athletic than I look like I am, and that's about it. So, yes, I very much get that. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm glad I, uh, this is so amusing to you. I, I... <laughs> I'm sorry, that came out of nowhere. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, sure, I guess. Uh, Matisse Thibel, you heard it here first, has a sa- the same offensive game as Nick Agar Johnson. No, nah. but uh, in all seriousness, um, Thibel is like that. Every time he has the ball, he hot potatoes it to the next guy. He doesn't even want to dribble. And then when he does have the inclination to do a dribble drive, it's more of an adventure than Danny Green and Robert Covington. And... You know, he can't really, he doesn't have much handle anyway. He's athletic, so he basically uses his speed first before he dribbles and he speeds himself up, and it usually just goes off his leg out of bounds. His three point shot, it looks good, but he, you could tell he's just not comfortable with it in terms of touch still. And he is a big negative on that end. And my fear, and one of the fears I definitely have in, say, a potential matchup with Brooklyn which is the team that I fear in the East. I don't really fear the Bucks. I For some reason, maybe it's Stockholm Syndrome, whatever you want to call it, I still fear fear the Celtics <laughs> just because they've beaten us so bad in the past two, in the two previous playoff series. But in, the, in a potential playoff series against Brooklyn, you're going to have Ben Simmons trying to guard one of the big three, Irving Harden and Durant. And he, obviously, Embiid's going to man the middle. He's not going to guard those guys, but... What other perimeter defenders are we going to have to at least throw at those guys, not slow them down, just to even put them on, you know, one of those players? Danny Green is going to get roasted one-on-one. Matisse Thibel is an awesome one-on-one defender. And the problem is, on the other end, they're just going to leave him wide open. They're going to be completely fine with, okay, if we lose this series because Matisse Thibel is making five threes a game, fine, so be it. But they are going to leave him. They're going to double MB. They're going to double Simmons with that guy probably. But you need him on the court defensively. And so that's one of my fears with Thibel. And, you know, I've gone back and forth on him as a prospect. Because he's one of the best defenders. He was one of the best defenders coming out of college. And one of the best rookie defenders I have seen uh, in recent memory especially. But... The offensive game, that's where his that's where I think his ceiling and him being a valuable rotation player, that's where his bread and butter is gonna be. Can he make the three point shot? I hope he's in Danny Green's hip pocket every day learning from him. But the offense is just it's ugly. Yeah, I think he will almost certainly have to play in a net series just because you gotta throw oh, in yeah, you one have of to. Kyrie or Harden. 
yeah, like you don't really have any other choices. It's just you also have to recognize that you're going to be playing four on five when that happens. But luckily, the Nets don't really have anyone to match up with Joel Embiid, so he might actually be able to still, you know, do enough in a four on five setting that yeah. Matisse is fine and out there. And real and real quickly, but, er, real quickly, I just wanted to say about Thibel. Um, the Sixers have been. I the Sixers might have found like a little back pocket thing to use in the playoffs. Um, in the game against Indiana where Embiid didn't play and the Sixers were down 16 and going into the fourth quarter, uh, the Sixers deployed a 2-3 zone, which if you know anything about Thibault's, you know, college career, especially his last yeah. two seasons at Washington, he was a god at the top of the 2-3 zone. And Simmons and Thibault at the top of a 2-3 zone is hell for ball handlers. Just, yeah, that's just lethal. It, it it was nasty, and that was the reason we got back into that game and ultimately beat the Pacers. And then the and then a uh, Doc recently he used it again. Um, I be, I'm trying to figure out which game it was, but he recently deployed uh, the two three. He based it was against the uh, Rockets, I believe, and um, Simmons and Thibel were once again, or no, Simmons was out that game, but I was just imagining because Embiid was playing in that game and Embiid was manning the middle along with Thibel and I'm just like there what no there was another game where Simmons and Thibel were at the top of the two three zone and Embiid was manning the middle and I just I can't remember the game right now but I'm just thinking like man deploying a two three zone to kind of just change up the pace a little bit that could be something ridiculous because Simmons and Thibel at the top of that two three zone I mean good luck well, someone who has had a little bit more, actually pretty similar offensive season, sadly, Furkan Korkmaz, who mm. last year seemed like he might, you know, really make something out of the very weird contract situation where the Sixers declined his option and then re-signed him at the minimum, yeah. which was a bit weird. But he responded by having a really solid season last year, shooting 40% from three on five attempts per game. And that has not exactly been the case this year. And if he's not shooting or otherwise contributing on the offensive end, unlike with Thibault, I'm not sure there's a place for him in a rotation if he can't shoot from the outside. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Um, Korkmaz has bit. well, obviously last year he started getting more rotation minutes and it was like, oh, could he be an NBA player? Um, Korkmaz is one of those players where he has, and somebody described it really well, he has just enough of a handle to get into trouble, but not good enough to get out of it. And Doc has been using him as a ball handler more, and I think he's figuring out that, okay, maybe pick and rolls with Korkmaz all the time in all bench lineups is not the best idea because when his three-pointer isn't going down, he's not as effective. Um, you know, he he tried it, – it's funny because like you'll see like his some of his summer league stuff. He had that infamous summer league game where he dropped forty against the Celtics. You look at his you know stuff from overseas, and you could see the outlines of a good rotation player there. But I think ultimately, at the end of the day, if he's not hitting his three pointers, he's not really a rotation player. And even though he's gotten a little bit bigger this year, and he has actually had a few more few defensive solid defensive possessions more than I thought I would see from him this year. It's still, it's he's one of those hot and cold shooters, and he really he doesn't do anything else. And you know, eventually, he's 
it's funny because he started in the game Tuesday against the Raptors, right? And that role is actually perfect for him because he's only asked to do one thing, which is have a quick trigger from three, which he can absolutely do. And he has his little pump fake that he does is one of actually one of the best shot fakes in the league and he can get fouled. But other than that, Isaiah Joe, even Doc said it, Isaiah Joe's probably, the rookie Isaiah Joe is probably going to take his minutes uh, because he's just been struggling this year. And when he's struggling like this, it's rough to watch. He's, there was a reason the Sixers didn't pick up his option last year. I will just say that. Speaking of rough to watch, let's move on to the rest of the big man rotation, starting with Dwight Howard. And it's funny to me just to watch Dwight Howard play this year. Obviously, he sort of had his big, you know, comeback moment last year with the Lakers and being a really effective bench player for them and winning the title. Watching Dwight Howard this year, it's honestly like watching early Rashawn Holmes, but worse in terms of just (laughs) fouling everybody on every play all the time. And it's wild to me that this is a guy who is a multiple time defensive player of the year who basically now is just going out there and hacking people. Right? Like, it's so confusing to me. Like, look, Dwight Howard is the best backup center Joel Embiid has had. But for literally like a month and a half, he has – Dwight Howard was has been terrible. He's been decent. He's been back to, you know, productive backup big the last five games. But, man, I have never seen someone – have the best and worst hands at the same time. He'll snag offensive rebounds out of the air. He'll snag a block out of the air every once in a while. But then when he gets the offensive rebound and goes back up, he can't finish the dunk. He can't finish the putback. He can't catch lobs. It's really wild to me and frustrating, honestly, because when Dwight Howard finishes and is productive in that way, the bench unit suddenly, suddenly becomes more competent. And then on the defensive end, my Lord, can he just not jump for blocks he's never ever gonna get can he not foul can he at least at least when he you know stunts on a pick and roll can he recover back to his man you don't want him guarding on the perimeter obviously but it's still he gets roasted in that way uh doc also for a while was trying to run dribble handoffs with dwight howard which was a disaster um basically you just want him catching and finishing at this point and just basically you know he's gonna foul I've accepted that at this point he's gonna be a foul machine which is decent for a backup big like it doesn't really matter if you're a backup big and you're fouling a lot but man you just wish sometimes you're just like where is that defensive player of the year IQ that I saw all the time in Orlando because he'll fall for pump fakes he'll get lot he'll won't be attentive towards the basket watching for you know cuts and all that it's uh Dwight Howard has been frustrating but when you look at that Toronto series way back when on the shot that will not be spoken we all saw the Embiid plus minus minutes in that series and Embiid was still terrible offensively in that series also injured and also was sick but even that he was it was like a minus 99 in game seven Greg Monroe played four minutes and was a minus 12 just think if they had Dwight Howard in that series, even with all the gripes I had about him. Like, it, yeah. I mean, it's, it, I would, I'll take it, but we do need a stretch five because that's one of the problems. He can't really fit with Simmons. Simmons, Thibel, and Howard lineups in particular have been terrible, but I can't really complain. It's better than Amir and Greg Monroe, Amir Johnson and Greg Monroe. 
Well, one player who could theoretically help with the stretch big man aspect is Mike Scott, who has really not played well this season, and that's very much an understatement. He's still at 34% from the floor, which is terrible for anyone, but especially for a pretty much pure stretch four kind of power forward, that's really, really a lot and not good in the sense of a lot. Yeah, I was kind of out on Mike Scott last year anyway. Um, It seems like to me he's kind of washed at this point. Um, he's been dealing with knee and in- he's been dealing with a knee issue all season also. And he's just now coming back from that. I think why Mike is on the team and he has values one because Sixer fans love the Mike Scott hive. Uh, that's been a, that's been a huge thing is ever since he w- came in the Tobias Harris trade, but he is, you know, a stretch four. he can stretch out the, the he, he can shoot with range from three. He definitely spaces the floor with Simmons and Embiid, but that's really his only value because on the defensive end, he gets roasted. And even his defensive strengths, you know, being a tough guy, being tough and, you know, physical, especially if somebody tries to post him up or something like that, it's just non-existent this year. And he's been not... I don't want to say negative player because that's not fair because he has been hurt. But I started to see the signs last year. The trade when the trade initially happened in the Jimmy Butler year, the 2018-19 season. Scott was a decent bench player. You could play him some rotation minutes, but to me, he just hasn't been a rotation player the last few years, and it's kind of bearing out that way. And um, yeah, I imagine he's not going to be with Philadelphia in the next season or maybe even at the trade deadline because he his contract can be used as you know filler but it's it's been a really down year for Mike Scott and I don't think that's actually going to change anytime soon well someone who hopefully will be a part of the Sixers plans next season and beyond I wanted to talk just very briefly about Paul Reed who played 47 of his 55 NBA minutes this season in two games in early January. So Mm -hmm. pretty much no sample size on him at all, but he's been killing it in the G league bubble. And he was someone who I thought really highly of as a draft prospect who I thought maybe honestly should have gone at the end of the first round. And instead he ended up falling to the 58th overall pick and This is just a guy who can contribute to a team in a whole lot of different ways. He's got great passing vision for a big man. He's someone who his college numbers in particular were stellar on the defensive end. And Mm -hmm. his game against Atlanta, he had three blocks in 20 minutes, which is certainly nothing to sneeze at. And I think of Paul Reed really highly. And I think he's honestly someone who could take over rotation minutes for this team sooner rather than later, but really it's mostly just been about his G league bubble performance. And then again, those two games in early January where he happened to play a lot more because of serious issues with the Sixers personnel wise in early January. Uh, You could see why Daryl Morey targeted this guy I mean guys like John Hollinger and other people were also high on Paul Reed uh I think Hollinger had him as a top 10 uh prospect in uh, the this past draft um basically he's a block he's a stocks guy to use a Bill Simmons term in college he had a lot of blocks he had a lot of steals he is six nine but he could he has switchability. I could tell you as somebody who crammed in a lot of YouTube clips of Paul Reed after the Sixers drafted him, he definitely <laughs> looks like – I don't know about the three-point shot yet. It, it looks like he's comfortable with it. My philosophy with jump shots is if somebody's 
you know, at least improving percentage wise and they're comfortable shooting that way, then they should shoot it that way. And Paul Reed definitely looks comfortable doing it. He's definitely had, you know, there were some, I remember watching some college highlights and there were times where he would pull up, you know, off the dribble and it looked like a disaster. He would brick it badly, but then there were times where he'd make the shot and I'm just like, Oh, okay. I see a pathway here, but Paul Reed is one of those high swing, high upside, low risk guys, right? Um, but you bank on his attitude, which is great. He also has one of the best nicknames ever, B-Ball Paul. And the Sixers PA announcer makes sure he's, he makes sure he says that every time Paul Reed scores. Well, the few times he scores whenever he does get garbage time minutes. But he's definitely someone I'm interested in tracking. He's been killing the G League. He's been shooting 38% from three in the G League, which I think is in a... I think it's encouraging, um, but Paul Reed definitely, he's not going to be in the rotation this year much unless some catastrophic injury happens or something, you know, or he just finds himself in the rotation by, you know, getting better every game. But the G League right now is where Paul Reed should be because I actually like his upside and he's definitely going to be an analytics darling down the road. I could definitely see that in the future. All right, so before we wrap up here, there were a few sort of other topics that I wanted to cover briefly. And the first one is interesting in the sense that I wasn't sure what I guess to expect on this front, but I was surprised when I saw that as of right now on Basketball Reference, so if you're looking at different stats, they very well may be different, but... The Sixers are seventh in the league in pace. And granted, Joel Embiid is not your typical sort of plotting seven foot two center, but it does still surprise me that a team whose clear best player is Joel Embiid is running the floor that often. And I think the vast majority of that is because of Ben Simmons, but it did still surprise me when I saw that their pace was that high. And part of that is being frustrated at the fact that they're playing faster than the Kings, which is ludicrous in so many different ways. <laughs> But it is still shocking to me that this team is such a high-paced team. And, you know, again, a lot of that is Ben Simmons, I'm sure. But it did still stand out to me sort of reviewing their stats in preparation for this podcast. I think it – so, actually, the Sixers in three of the five years that – well, three of the five years that Embiid has played, um, you could – I'm going to count his rookie year even though he played 30 games. The Sixers have – always kind of been top 10 in pace with Embiid and yes Simmons has a lot to do with that but Embiid people make Embiid out to be and not you or anything I, I know what your thoughts are on Embiid but people make Embiid out to be this plotting big who you have to play at a slower pace and you know some of that is true I think there's some truth to yeah the pace slows down a little bit when Embiid is on the floor uh, versus when Embiid and Simmons on the floor versus when it's just Simmons. But I think it correlates with Embiid being in better shape. He's running the floor more, um, which is what he did in 2018-19. It's kind of what he did in 2017-18 uh, as well. The Sixers were fourth in pace that year, and then in the Jimmy Butler year, they were eighth. And then this year, they are uh, they're sixth. Well, I'm looking at NBA.com. Joel Embiid, yes, he'll inevitably bring the pace down a little bit, but there are just so many 
he has so many skills that fit with a transition game. He can hit the trail three. He can beat his man down the floor, especially now that he's in better shape. And when he gets deep post position, it's over. And uh, I think it's it's two things. One, it's obviously Ben Simmons. Two, it's the shooting. And then I guess three things. Three, Joel Embiid has been committed to running the floor again, as opposed to last year when the Sixers were 24 fourth or fifth in pace and we all kind of know why that was the case um I think Simmons and Embiid they can do the Simmons and Embiid thing of that there's a lot of misnomers with that and pace is certainly one of them but um yes uh Embiid being more in better shape and committed to running the floor in transition has definitely helped out the Sixers pace in a lot of ways this year have you noticed that the Sixers are currently leading the Eastern Conference uh yes I I I noticed that yeah, I thought you might have been aware of that. Yeah, I, I'm kind of aware of that, yeah. So, <laughs> given, <laughs> given that the Sixers are at Pretty the good. top... Yeah, not, not too bad. But given that the Sixers are at the top of the Eastern Conference, you know, that sort of brings about all of the playoff discussions in the sense of, you know, the last few years, the Sixers were a team that a lot of people sort of thought of as a dark horse contender. You know, like if everything breaks right, the Sixers have the baseline talent with Embiid and Simmons to win the championship. And now that's sort of more actionable in a sense that, you know, it's very different when they're the fourth seed, but a dark horse versus literally the number one team in the conference. And you talked earlier about how you're not really afraid of Milwaukee and that Brooklyn is really the team to watch for the Sixers. And I'm there with you, but I think my one reservation is just that, Brooke Lopez has had a really rough last like 12 months or so. Yeah. But in his best moments with the Bucks, he was someone who was a real deterrent on the defensive end and a huge part of why the Bucks were the best defense in the league by a mile last year. And if he can sort of recover even a little bit to sort of where he was last year versus this year where he's really struggled, I think the Bucks could pose a serious problem for the Sixers. But given the way they've looked so far this season, I can understand where you're coming from with really only being afraid of the Nets for this team. Yeah, and it's not – look, I think the Bucks are still a good team. I, remember, I was high on the – I mean, you know this. We had conversations on this podcast about the Bucks before. I was really high on the Bucks after they fired Jason Kidd. That's how bad of a coach I think he was. <laughs> as soon as they fired Jason Kidd, the Bucks immediately got better. And I was in on the Mike, Budin, uh, the Mike Buddingholzer uh, hiring – but the last two playoffs, it has just showed me that Bud is not a good coach or he's a good regular season coach and is unwilling to adjust his philosophy. Now, the Bucks are trying new stuff this year. They are trying stuff, and I will give them the credit for that. But my whole thing is I, I'm not scared of playoff Bud. I think it's very easy to game plan for Giannis, especially as the years go on. And we have the prerequisite personnel to play Giannis it's well and also we literally just have the option to throw Simmons or Embiid at Giannis which has happened in the past and you know if you look at the Christmas game last year the Sixers were relatively successful in Embiid guarding Giannis basically just playing off of him and walling off any drives that Giannis had because Embiid is one of the few guys that can match Giannis strength for strength but you know the Bucks' defensive philosophy, um, I think Brooke Lopez is definitely important to that, and he hasn't played well in the last year. I just don't know, even in Brooke Lopez's best defensive form, 
the Sixers or the the Sixers really don't play deep. I know the Bucks defense defensive philosophy is to protect the paint and allow a lot of threes, but they haven't dealt with a post-up player like Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid typically has amazing games against the Bucks. Um, there have been a lot of games of that the last few years where Embiid has averaged 40, 30. He dropped 30 on the uh, Christmas Day game. Um, it it really, I'm just, I think, I'm very confident, let's just say, in the Bucks. The Nets, it, I mean, do we need to say any more about the Nets? They're clicking offensively, and more and more, I'm realizing that if they just play, if they just have three two-minute stretches a game where they just play defense, they lock in, they try, then their offense is just enough to outweigh everything else after that. Yeah, it's funny that really Utah has actually been the team that's done this more than anyone else this season. But with the Nets, it's like you get a good three-minute stretch and that's it. And, you know, the clear all-time team for this was the KD version of the Golden State Warriors, right? Where it's yeah. like... They can be down by 15 and there are five minutes left in the game. And I'm like, you know what? If you try as a team from minute five through minute two of the fourth quarter, that lead could just disappear and, you know, just go on a 24 to five run and that's it. Yep. And this current Nets team definitely has that kind of play in their bag. Really, the issue is just going to be, can they play any defense at all? And Joel Embiid is the one player in the league who I might be the most worried about for the Nets because... DeAndre Jordan is a very good one-on-one -on -one defender still a lot of the time, and his rim protection numbers have actually still been very, very solid this season. But when it gets to a playoff environment and it's a seven-game series, I'm worried about DeAndre Jordan against Joel Embiid by, like, game five of that series. It might be a series problem. No, by, like, before the series starts, it's going to be a series problem. <laughs> it's going to well, be a yes, series problem. Yes, okay, fine. <laughs> no, but the thing is, like, even and maybe I'm just being reserved and not trying to be complete a complete homer here, but it it just seems like even if Embiid averages forty and fifteen, let's just pencil him in for that. I'm just wondering. <laughs> yeah, where, let's just pencil him in for forty and fifteen. I mean, okay. honestly, honestly, do do <laughs> am I wrong with the with the defenders the Nets have to guard to check Embiid? But uh, I'm just. I'm wondering where the other points are coming from because you still have to stop those three guys on the other end. Not stop, but slow them down. And Ben Simmons can only do so much. It's like, I would almost rather him have the choice of guarding Harden or uh, Kyrie because nobody in the world is ever going to stop Kevin Durant ever for the rest of our lives on the offense or when he's on the offensive end of the floor. And so it's like, you don't even want to waste Simmons on Durant unless it's like crunch time. But like... The Thibel problem, that's real. We're going to be playing Thibel a lot of minutes. We're going to be relying on Danny Green to reliably switch out sometimes. And that's where the fear comes in for me because the Sixers, while, they're def while they have elite defensive players, their defense is kind of – it's kind of vacillated throughout the year. And it's – you know, it, it, at one point it was number two – I think now per cleaning the glass, it's just outside the top 10. Um, it's probably going to jump after after they destroyed the Mavericks tonight. But mm -hmm. I wish they could play more consistently on that end of the floor. Like they're, they're going to have to hang their hat as an elite defensive team this year. And they haven't shown me the consistency just yet, even though you have two defensive player of the year candidates on the same team. Right. But it's overall the team defense. They leak a lot of points, especially on the perimeter, because once you get beyond Simmons and Thibel, you're n Shake Milton's not going to stop them or guard 
Kyrie, even though Milton has been better defensively this year. Um, Tyrese Maxey, no. Furkan Korkmaz, okay. Like, just going down the list beyond Simmons and Thibel, I mean, what do you see there? It's it's going to be tough sledding. That's So that's how I see it playing out. I think the Nets still have an advantage over the Sixers in that way. I think that Tobias Harris will end up being the most important player in that series. I think if he yeah. can get really hot from three-point range, if he has two or three really good games, I think that swings the series. And if he struggles, if he struggles, I think that's it for them. Because I think that if Tobias Harris is not giving them at least something close to the level of what whoever the Nets' third leading scorer in that series is going to be, I think that's really going to be curtains for the Sixers. But if Harris can put together two or three really good games where he sort of maybe not take over, but at least really make his presence felt, I think that'll be the swing factor in how that series ends up going. And that's where that's where my other fear comes in. It's sure. the lack of perimeter creation. And do you really trust Tobias Harris to be that guy? Rob Mahoney had a good piece on Joel Embiid. I'm sure you've read it. Um, basically, it talked about how Joel is bending defenses now. And so I have been rethinking about my half-court concerns in the playoffs. And I'm curious before – I know we're running out of time here. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. But the way Mahoney described Embiid in his play this year and how he's bending defenses, it is making me rethink maybe he can offset – the deficit in terms of perimeter perimeter creation because his handle is better his pull-up jumper he's shooting a ridiculous percentage on pull-up jumpers his mid-range it he hasn't been hitting it the last three games but it's really Dirk-esque it's like 59 percent look at Kurt Goldsberry's Embiid shot chart that he posted on Instagram he has been a mid-range monster and his pull-up is hezzy pull-up he has a hezzy pull-up as a seven footer and it's been mastered this year and so I'm thinking maybe I'm over concerned about the lack of perimeter creation because I've been burnt by it in the playoffs uh, outside of the Jimmy Butler year so I'm wondering what you think about this can Embiid really offset it I know there's the whole big center um can they really be the fulcrum of an offense in the playoffs um, can they really be the best player on on uh, on your offense? How are you feeling about Embiid's play and his ability to bend defenses? Can it translate? So the first answer is yes, I do think it can translate. And the more sort of detailed answer on that is, you know, regarding Rob Mahoney's piece about bending defenses and how Joel Embiid is bending defenses. Ultimately, we talked about this earlier, where really the most important part for him on that front is being able to reliably pass out of double teams. Because if you're getting the kind of space that playing with Joel Embiid affords, you know, all of a sudden a 35% three-point shooter can look like a 40% three-point shooter because he's just that much more wide open, as opposed to, you know, what they would look like in a more normal offense where they have a little bit less space. And right. The thing with the playoffs, the old Bob Myers thing is in the regular season, you have six feet in the playoffs, you have six inches. And the problem with that though, is that you can't leave shooters that wide open, just generally speaking, but MB just makes you make so many terrible choices. If he's able <laughs> yeah. to reliably make those passes out of double teams. Okay. Yeah. That, that's definitely, that's going to be the big question come playoff time. And also there's always Embiid is, 
going to scare me once or twice every two games that he'll just have an injury scare. I'm just hoping we get to see a healthy Embiid by the playoffs so we get to uh but we so we can uh, get to find out. I think all basketball fans are hoping that we have a healthy Embiid and really just healthy every team heading into the playoffs. Yeah, de- yeah, definitely. All right, anything else you want to cover before we wrap up here? Um no, uh well, I will say one thing. Um the, the really and I've I've said this joke before, but really the only Eastern Conference team that I fear is the uh, 76ers <laughs> because they they just have they have gone through so much weird stuff over the years and really unless a big trade happens, the margin for error for this team scares me like I mentioned it earlier, Shake Milton goes down. The bench is way more famine than feast. If one of Ben or Joel go down, I think people love to, especially I'm guilty of this. People want to always cite the, you know, Ben's record without Embiid. Joel's record without Ben isn't so good either. So both of those guys need each other. When one of them goes down, it seems like the other team forgets how to play basketball. And this team is just... It's been refreshing this year, all things considered. I know it sounds like maybe I've been too critical sometimes in this podcast, but it's been refreshing watching this team this year and, you know, seeing competent basketball. So that's really all I have to add to that. The Sixers are fun this year. Who would have thought shooting and dribbling, you know, helps out a team? Yeah, it tends to be important, you know, on the margins, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. Yeah, sure. (laughs) All right. Well, he is Jordan Christmas. You can find his work once again on the hashtag basketball website, doing the weekly section on the Sixers for the power rankings. You can also find him on Twitter at J-O-R-D-A-N underscore X-M-A-S. And you can check out his work on the Sly Hooper podcast, which I was a guest on to talk about the Sacramento Kings, you know, the Sacramento Kings as they are during that podcast so you need to come on that podcast again because the kings are struggling and after you came on they started playing well (laughs) yeah it's it's about time you know get them out of that losing streak but anyway you can find his work on the sly hooper podcast as well you can find me on twitter at n-b-a-j-o-h-n-s-o-n if you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. Always appreciated. And as always as well, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for having me on.